You're listening to a DM podcast. In those days, we used to pull out the reflectors signs on the side of the roads and then use it as a runway. So all their memories etched in my mind and we'd walk away from those sorts of evacuations thinking, um, as a team, we've done a really good job. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Radjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. This podcast interview is one I've been looking forward to for many weeks. Leanne Little is a board member of the Royal Flying Doctor Service in South Australia and Northern Territory, and she is an Arunta woman born and raised in Alice Springs. Leanne has academic qualifications in environmental science, law and management, but she believes her most important knowledge has come from her grandmother and great-grandmother, who taught her about traditional land management skills, particularly with the use of fire. Leanne has served other senior public service roles, including the Manager of Food Security for Aboriginal Communities in South Australia and the Manager of the APY and West Coast Regions of South Australia, both within the Department of Premier and Cabinet. She was also the first Aboriginal policewoman in South Australia, where she worked for 11 years as a senior constable in remote and Adelaide police stations. She's worked on the international circuit for the United Nations with stints in Geneva, New York and Paris with UNESCO and as a director for Bush Heritage Australia. She's published scientific papers on the critical importance of integrating Aboriginal science into landscapes. And since returning to Darwin, Leanne has worked as a senior policy advisor for the Northern Land Council and the principal legal policy officer in the Department of the Attorney General and Justice, where she is currently the director of the Justice Unit where her small unit is responsible for delivering the NT's Aboriginal Justice Agreement. Big CV. Impressive lady. Now you can see why I've been excited about doing this interview for a while. Hello, Leanne. Thank you so much for taking time for a chat. Thanks for inviting me. We're so thrilled to have you as a board member with RFDS in South Australia and Northern Territory, also known as RFDS Central Operations. You're an absolute asset for us due to your background and knowledge and wisdom and ongoing work. Before we dive into learning more about your activities and plans in that space, I wanted to ask you about your childhood and family. I grew up in suburban Canberra with two public servant parents, lots of travel in the back seat of a Holden station wagon, and my parents were determined to make sure that we had a multicultural upbringing. My mother actually worked under Al Grasby at the Human Rights Commission for many years and uh, tried to tackle racism, you know, head on. But my family, we had little to no direct contact with Aboriginal families or culture, which 
saddens me and which I'm working to rectify in my later years. Could you tell me where you're from and your mob and your family? Sure. So uh, I was born and raised in Alice Springs. I did all my schooling there. My parents, my mum was from the eastern side of Alice Springs, eastern Arundel country, and my dad is from central uh, Alice Springs, central Arundel country. And my grandparents uh, are both Aboriginal as well. Yeah, we were lucky enough that uh, my father's father and his siblings owned several cattle stations out to the west of Alice Springs between Mount Ebenezer and Uluru, Katajuda. And we spent a lot of time out bush, but we had the lifestyle that was just fantastic. My grandparents could speak five or six traditional Aboriginal languages and we didn't realise it at the time being so young, but it was a privilege to be around such educated people, particularly the skills they had in using fire, knowing sites and telling us stories. And I don't think people appreciate that depth of 60,000 plus knowledge as a kid, but I've certainly come to value it as I've gotten a lot older. Right. Can you explain what country means to you? So country, so my traditional country, I'm a traditional owner for Alice Springs and to the east of Alice Springs um, with my mother's connections. Country to me means me, it's my identity, it's my place. Every time I fly into Alice Springs, it's hard to explain in words, but there's this sense of just relief that I'm back home, I'm safe, I'm there to enjoy myself. I don't get those feelings when I fly into other locations. It's my place. You know, there's no better feeling in some ways than knowing that it's your your country and your place and your connection to family and cultures strong. And I understand your father worked out bush uh, all of his life and he had to use the RFDS at one point. How did that come about? Dad worked for McMahon Constructions and then later Adrail. Uh, so he was out bush for sometimes 10 to 11 months of the year. So we rarely saw him in town. But when he did come into town, he used to drive all night to get to us kids because there was five of us, uh, five siblings. And then he'd take off on the Sunday morning and head back home. But we loved Dad's smell of diesel shirts because we, as soon as he came in, we knew he was home when we'd come running home from school because he'd have his work shirt on and there was this dust and diesel smell. And it, it was just because we didn't have him home very often, it was such a lovely smell that we still associate Dad with. But Dad, Dad was working out on the Barclay and... He had a medical episode out there and he was flown from the Barclay to Alice Springs Hospital and that was the first time ever and I think it was in his early 40s that he'd ever flown on an aeroplane, which is quite ironic because his son is actually an international pilot and uh, it's a bit of a laughing joke in the family how Dad doesn't like flying. He's still frightened of flying but... That first experience, he was unconscious in the aircraft, so we, it, it wasn't funny at the t- time, but it, we look back on it now and it's quite ironic. Wow. I know from talking to a number of clinicians in the RFDS in uh, Queensland and also in South Australia, 
that it's really something to take into consideration that sometimes you may have a patient who has never been in a plane before and that really uh, has to be considered when talking about, you know, patients' safety, mental health, um, comfortable or not, you know what I mean? How do you tackle that and make sure that that patient is as calm as can be? So um, I hope your dad's trip was okay. I think it was okay because he was unconscious. So <laughs> I would say it was a great experience. But, <laughs> I mean, um, he has flown since, but he, he's still a nervous traveller and a very, very nervous traveller. Right. Now, I understand your sister, your twin sister, also had to be transported at one point. What happened there? So, yeah, so um, both my twin and my mum has used RFDS. I mean, we've had this long life association and love for RFDS. Uh, My twin sister, Lynette, she's a scientist and she's been flown out several times uh, by RFDS with, again, medical episodes and we're just so grateful uh, with the level of expertise that makes sure that when people are at their worst situation, they get the best of care. Now, within your culture, the passing of knowledge and wisdom from person to person through generations is so important. How do you feel that that's uh, shaped you to be the woman that you are today in terms of that culture and that passing on of wisdom? Oh, I, was, I was very fortunate to have very strong grandparents in my life and parents, but if I look back at the issues that my grandparents dealt with, um, they didn't have formal educations at all and they spoke, you know, many languages and several dialects and I learnt very quickly that the person that mops the floor, you treat just as much with enough, just as much respect as you do the CEO of the office. My nana used to work in a place where uh, there were scientists with PhDs and every letter after their name. She was a magnificent firelighter. She knew how to light fires. She knew everything about plants and animals and how they how they f- um, bred their behaviours and more. And there were so many people that were worse off because... As far as I were concerned, she was the person who mopped the floors and yet she knew more than those other people that were in the CEO and senior positions in an org. So I learned very quickly about treating people respectfully, understanding that intelligence is not just a matter of how many degrees you've got in university. It's about your experiences. It's about how you treat people and standing by your principles and watching my parents and grandparents deal with some of the issues in Alice Springs, I wanted to be that change agent. I wanted to be that person that was a circuit breaker to make sure that what happened to them wasn't lost in history and we could move forward and be better people as a result of us being respectful and treating people properly. So racism has been very much a major part of your childhood then that's really impacted you in terms of those decisions and standing up for those values? Oh, for sure. So, I mean, I would say that it was so prevalent in my life that, you know, I went to bed with it and I woke up with it. Um, and people might find that statement a little bit hard to understand, but the reality is is that even as a 
primary school student and later as a high school student, I was one of the very few people with my twin sister who completed year 12 at the local high school. And it was a very difficult space for us to own because people chose to treat us differently and they believed that we didn't belong there, but we had every right to be there. And that's probably been dealing with it's been where I get my fight from. Whereas I look at my twin sister, she's probably not as tough as me, but she's gone through exactly the same battles. And it, and it made me realise that people, when they experience experiences, come out differently. And we all can't stand up and fight the good fight, but we can all do something to stop mm. disrespectful behaviours in communities mm. like racism. It's so true. And on one of the videos that I watched of you, you talked about a story of going in to try on a dress as a 10-year-old would you mind relaying that story? Because it really struck me at how how powerful that uh, experience would have been on, on a young girl and, and understanding who she was. Yeah, and, and it's those sorts of memories that get etched in your mind that never leave and they come back to you from time to time when you ask yourself how far have we really come from when I was that 10-year-old girl in that change room trying on a dress. There weren't many dress uh, shops in Alice Springs at the time, so you really had no choice. I went in there with my my twin sister. We tried on dresses, uh, put them on, and then the shopkeeper said, because I'd tried it on, then I had to wear it. And then she went in and put air freshener into that change room that I had tried the dress on in. And the memory of that was something that I'll never forget. And, of course, then we had to buy the dress. And I go back to Alice Springs quite regularly now and I go back there and I, in some ways it hasn't changed in their views. And I think that's disappointing and shameful. And we can do better. We can all do better to make sure that another 10-year-old doesn't experience that. And I'm not sure that I can put my hand on my heart and say that that still doesn't happen in places mm. across Australia. Absolutely. Do you feel that those experiences for you as a young girl led to you then becoming a policewoman? Because I, it's such, a, such an amazing choice of, of a role for a young girl. I think there was so many experiences like that that I made a decision when I was around 10 years old that I wanted to be a policewoman. You know, people say you can't be what you can't see. Well, for me, that wasn't true. I had never seen an Aboriginal police officer before. In fact, my relationship with police officers were really only minimal at that point. So I believed that there were good people in the world and if the law was applied fairly, you wouldn't let your judgments or biases play into that space and you'd be able to help both victims and offenders and bystanders and witnesses. So I felt that policing was a career. I was a bit of an adrenaline junkie, so I thought off I go. And, you know, I thought it was going to be my career for life. So you went to South Australia rather than Northern Territory. Why was that? Because I'd seen so many injustices in the Northern Territory and people being treated so badly that I didn't feel like that I had the, the ability to influence 
anything, even if I was wearing a uniform in the Northern Territory. It was also because I had a large family in Alice Springs that they, they weren't happy at all that I was going to join the police force. Like It wasn't a career that people thought that any Aboriginal person would want to do, let alone do. So I was also heavily involved with horses at the time and my parents convinced me that maybe there are more opportunities with the mounted police. But to be perfectly honest, I promised my mother whatever came in the mail first because I'd also applied to to do a, a teaching degree in Queensland and I said, whatever comes in the mail first, I'll do. Well, the police acceptance letter came <laughs> the day before the teaching degree offer and my mother was devastated. Oh. I wasn't. Oh, gosh. You were looking for adventure. I was absolutely thrilled. You know, a lot of people ask my, my parents, why are your kids so successful? I've got a sister who's a senator in South Australia. Uh, my brother's an international pilot and a, has been a captain for a major international airline. My other twin is a PhD. She works at a major university in South Australia. And I, I reckon I've done okay too. I reckon you have. <laughs> People say, why is it that your children have succeeded so well? And the sad bit about it is that we got brought up tough because my parents knew we had to be tough to survive in a system that had to fight the unnecessary battles that we've fought. I feel like that if I didn't have those battles in front of me, that I would have been a more amazing pe- person than what we are as you know individuals. And I get frustrated that even in 2023, we're still celebrating the first person to be a judge, you know, in this state or territory, or we've got here in the Northern Territory, the first Aboriginal person that ever graduated from a remote community with an ATAR score, and yet that school has been operating in that system for the last 30-odd years. My view is that's nothing to celebrate in many ways. We need to look back and reflect on what do we need to do better to make sure there's not one person we're celebrating, but there are so many Aboriginal people graduating from X, Y, Z and ask ourselves, why haven't we got an Aboriginal person in this field or that field? What can we do to encourage Aboriginal people to participate in the workforce and to thrive? And we don't have those conversations very often. And if they are happening, they're usually not with Aboriginal people. And I think if we start to listen to what Aboriginal people have to say and we accept that racism and discrimination has been a significant part and the reason why they don't participate in the workforce, why they feel like they've been excluded, we can all benefit from that. A diverse workplace is something that I like to replicate in my current workspace and the benefits outweigh anything that I've ever imagined having people who are multilingual from different countries with different experiences. It makes the world a better place. It does. It certainly does. I, I don't think that I want my children to be have to be brought up tough to deal with what I've dealt with because it's just wrong. It's just so unnecessary. 
it's just not a good feeling that you have to feel like you're going to be confronted every time when you when you're trying to put a position on the table that why we should be doing this or why we should be doing that. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes, minus the wings, and the Isuzu D-Max and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. So you head off to South Australia for your police training and was it what you thought it would be? Well, certainly the driving wasn't. I mean, I'd never had encountered a roundabout in my life until I got into South Australia in Adelaide. And oh, you should come to Canberra. Plenty there. It's which way you go around them though. But um, the, I'd never been through a set of traffic lights ever. In fact, I don't think I'd ever gotten over 100 kilometres an hour in the car because I've driven four-wheel drives all my life. So driving those amazing pursuit cars was just exciting for me. I loved it. Uh, yeah. Directing traffic just by uh, the very presence in Kill William Street North Terrace. There were so many experiences I absolutely loved. I didn't really like the physical training because running through water with seaweed on, against your legs felt like snakes you know it just was a, it just wasn't something that I enjoyed but for the most of the time I enjoyed the training but I also missed my family back in Alice because we rarely um, w- went on holidays together and we were such a close-knit family that it was difficult to go down to a place where I had one relative that I hadn't um, known well, and but I had to pursue my dream, I suppose. Yeah. And so you worked directly in Adelaide um, for the police, but you also did remote areas like Unadada and Marla and that sort of thing, right? Yes. Um, I went back up north, uh, loved working in the APY land, so I was in Armata there for a while and obviously based from Marla, but I was also based at Armata. And then did a fair bit of work in Udnadatta there, travelling around, doing, you know, doing the work that you do there. I actually never got over to Birdsville. I always was cut short on this side of Birdsville because we would go over and rescue people, but we always had to bring them back this side of the border. So it was a bit disappointing and I'm yet to get to Birdsville. Okay. So... When you, you were the first um, Aboriginal policewoman in South Australia. So when you were dealing um, with other local communities, were they happy to see an Aboriginal policewoman? Did they feel that you were on their side or was it, did it help to at all um, improve relations and the work that you were doing? That's a really interesting question because I was only sort of 
thinking about it the other day. I'd pull people up on the highway because they were speeding. At that time, Northern Territory had an open speed limit and we were sitting with a 110k limit on this side of the border. So you'd be guaranteed you would get a lot of takers for speeding if you sat just this side of the NT border. I'd pull people up, and this is non-Aboriginal people, and they'd, they'd be like, oh, so we, can, we taught you how to read and write, did we? And then there were just very derogatory comments made to me at the time. But I looked at it that way that they didn't know who it was. They were just upset that they were getting a ticket. They didn't know my background or where I was from, so it didn't bother me. But on the other side of the fence, when I used to arrest Aboriginal people, and particularly when I first went into the APY lands because we had connections back from uh, the extended families' cattle stations, they said, why did it take you so long to get here? We've been waiting for you. And it opened doors. The apprehension was actually from my superior officers who said, oh, you can't possibly work up here. You've got too many connections. You can speak, you know, partially the language. Um, Your conflicts of interest are going to be compromised. And I realised that at that time that people can put barriers in front of you that aren't even necessary and you need to challenge those, those issues because sometimes those barriers are put in front of you when they're not justified at all. So when I worked with Aboriginal people and arrested people, I was known as a good fair cop. So when people got arrested or reported, it's like, yep, you got me, here I am. And I was pretty fit back then. So, you know, I could chase people. Like the Aboriginal people just loved the fact that there was an Aboriginal person who was a fully sworn police officer. My parents didn't understand what all the fuss was when I was the first Aboriginal police officer in South Australia and still to this day they will say to me, don't think that you're anything special just because you were the first. You were just first in line and no <laughs> just, one just could put give you, a rat's... you down a peg. <laughs> no one could give a rat's tail if you were second in line. So, you know, that's right. it. So they're pretty grounded. My, my parents... Um, have grounded us kids and we've always felt that we've just grabbed those opportunities that have been in front of us and taken them, embraced them and run with them. And if we fell over or failed, there was a lesson to be learnt in that rather than just, say, blame somebody else. Mum, Mum and Dad were really good at making us own our faults and failures and learning from those, but God help us if we made those mistakes a second time. Right, Yes. It's definitely one of the things that I bring up my two teenage boys with. I don't mind mistakes, but you don't make them twice. That's right. Yeah. So when you were out um, working uh, remotely in South Australia as a police officer, did you have much contact with the RFDS at that point? We always had contact with the RFDS. We were evacuating people. I mean, I can remember some of the evacuations. We used toilet rolls, um, that had been soaked in diesel and we had flashing police, you know, every police car you could imagine with flashing lights in areas where we had to evacuate people out of very remote um, places to get to emergency care. All that work was done on a voluntary basis. In those days, you never got paid overtime in the police force. 
Right. It was just what you did as part of your service as a police officer. But I lost count of the amount of times. I remember working at Unadatta and there was some wonderful doctors there that used to just come in and then um, do their work and the whole community loved them. There's stretches within South Australia of highway where the plane lands on the highway itself. Did you ever have to do that? Yeah, we did that once. That was incredible. It was the when we first when RTS first got their Pilatus, so they were very quick off the ground and needed a short space to lift off. It's an area, and most people won't pick it up on the Stuart Highway, but in those days we used to pull out the reflectors on the, on the signs on the side of the roads and then use it as a runway and it's it's an amazing sight to see and in those days we didn't have a lot of cameras certainly people didn't have mobile phones so all their memories etched in my mind and we walk we'd walk away from those sorts of evacuations thinking um, as a team we've done a really good job yeah I've always said throughout this podcast that I think uh, first responders are just, you know, we at the RFDS can't do our job without having those first responders there on site, whether that's the police or whether it's the person doing the CPR or whatever it might be. It's the lady that's pulled the child out of the pool. Every single person that's there on site, trained or not trained, becomes a first responder and um, it's, yeah, we can't, we can't save lives if we don't have those people to like the light the highway up and allow us to land. So, yeah, yeah. very important. Very now, obviously, good. as a police officer, you end up dealing with um, violence and uh, accidents and uh, a lot of that can be quite traumatic. Was that difficult for you and how did you cope as a, a young policewoman uh, dealing with all of that trauma? I think because I'd witnessed a lot of trauma as a young child and then even as a teenager throughout my life, we'd lost loved ones very early in tragic circumstances and I'd seen a lot of accidents when we were uh, out bush that I almost became quite numb to feeling grief and trauma to the point where I'd go to a funeral or I'd go somewhere and my emotional reactions were quite troublesome. I just didn't have them. I didn't cry at funerals. I think that's the tragedy of that era where you had to show a level of toughness and not expose that you were struggling. I was lucky enough that I had people around me who I could talk to and I had outlets that weren't associated just with police officers. So I had still had my horses, I still had my blue healers. So I suppose I, without even knowing it, had my own strategies to deal with the stress and more. But there are those memories of really bad experiences that I've just almost vaulted at the back of my head that will never, ever be brought to the surface. But interestingly, it's you can't get away from the smell of that might cause a reaction to remind me of some of those experiences. So I've always been alerted to it's not just the witnessing of a incident, that there are certain smells that trigger reactions to me. And now that I'm conscious of what they are, I've got strategies to deal with it. But it, it was pretty tough. 
and I think, but I, I, I saw other people do it tougher than me. Well, if we go conversely from the tragic and the and the traumatic, I presume there were also lighter sides of working as a policewoman in remote areas. Were there times where just the most ridiculous or absurd things happened and where afterwards you and colleagues were laughing about the absurdity of it all? Um, I was working in the city and I can remember we had to do a, a raid on a house that had some drugs in it and it was an Aboriginal house and we'd set up all this surveillance and cobbers in the back, you know, and the sides and everything and I knocked on the door in full police uniform and I got invited in but the white police officer wasn't to be invited in but I said, no, he's coming with me. And then they, you know, showed me their crops and, you know, they were quite happily showing me around and telling me who they are and who they were related to. That wasn't what we had anticipated or planned for. <laughs> but the best one I think that I've ever had was uh, I'd picked up a, a person who'd drunk too much in this, on the outskirts of town and he had a dog with him. And I said, come on, mate, I'll take you home, jump in the car. And he had. He said, what about my dog? What about my dog? I said, yeah, chuck the dog in. And I took him home and dropped him off. And he was crying all the way until we dropped him off. And I said, what's wrong? What's wrong? Are you okay? You know, he said, no one's going to believe me that I got picked up by an Aboriginal police woman, let alone my dog got a ride in a police car. He says, they're going to say I was drunk. <laughs> and so that, that, that caught, I can remember that story very clearly because I thought, wow, like, that, that, was, that, was a, that was a moment to remember. But, yeah, there are many good memories and yeah. uh, they probably outweigh the bad experiences. So you ended up leaving policing in the end. What made you decide to change your career? So, unfortunately... I recognised that my goal to do what I wanted to do wasn't going to happen. Um, I ended up taking the police force to the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission and then to the Federal Court for discrimination, uh, racism, and that ended my career, basically. I knew it was over as soon as I made that move. Um, it was unfortunate, but in some ways it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it allowed me to have to move into a space where I could choose another career and use what I'd learnt from those decade-plus years in the police force in, in another space to do what I wanted to do, which was to help people. And did you end up um, winning your case or being supported in your case in the end? We settled out of court, but it was a pretty gruelling process, but... I look back at it now and the amount of police officers that supported me in that process and gave evidence in support of my court matter, um, they're the ones that are my heroes and the ones that I remember the most, that they're the ones who made a difference at the end of the day and many of them are still in the police force. Well, that sort of has been the launch pad and for anyone that's listening, you should go and search Leanne Little on Google and watch some of the videos that... that she talks about in her advocacy, just incredible work on many, many different fronts. How have you 
over that time since leaving the police force, how have you surrounded yourself by supportive people to be able to do the work that you do? I mean, I've always had my family around me. Um, we're a very large family from Alice Springs, but they are the people that I can, are my constant and I go to all the time. I've also managed to build really strong teams that believe in our vision and goal of what we want to do, whatever career I dealt with, because I did get and completed a science degree before I did my law degree, so that was something else that I did. Um, but the impetus for the law degree was after the court case. But for me, I think surrounding yourself with with like-minded people and, and people who want to follow in the, on the same journey that you want to go on. I think that is critical um, for anybody to have people be around you. And, yeah, that's I found that's been a lifeline for me so many times. Would you have any um, advice or lessons learned for somebody that's experiencing racism in their life and and things that they should do or actions that they should take? The advice I would give to anyone that experienced racism, sexism, ageism is to find people who can support you and you may not necessarily want to do what I did, like take organisations to court or put in complaints because not everyone has the capacity or strength to be able to do that. Uh, But... If people don't speak up about racism, it makes it very difficult for the next person who raises it to put a position on the table or to prove that fact because quite often there are behaviours in the workplace or socially that people don't know that it's not deliberate actions that they're doing but the system allows them to do it and get away with it and reminding yourself that Personally, that person may be absolutely appalled about what they said and what they've done, but quite often systems sit within organisations or uh, practices that that allow that behaviour to go unchecked, unbalanced and unaddressed. So my advice would be look at all your options on the table, look at what you think you'll be able to cope with and live with and take that course of action. Thank you. That's wise advice. So, Leanne, tell me, why did you decide to join as a board member for the Royal Flying Doctor Service? Oh, I love the RFDS. I mean, I could be their walking model with the RFDS um, clothing, if you like, because we just, as a family, we've had so much interaction with the Royal Flying Doctor Service. They're a professional unit. They're the first person who you'd ring to get you the help you need to, you know, in your most saddest or worst circumstances. Uh, The RFDS has just always been one of our almost role models for us as people growing up in the bush and also they're just just an outstanding service. So I didn't even have to flinch when I was asked whether I wanted to be on the board or not. It was just an instant, yes, where do I sign up? (laughs) A bit like the police force in many ways. Well, we're really pleased to have you, I can tell you that. The service that's today called the Royal Flying Doctor Service was started almost 95 years ago and it's grown from the leasing of one plane 
in Cloncurry, Queensland in 1928 to Australia's third largest airline, 79 planes, 185 road service vehicles and national service footprint across all states and territories. And over that time, so much has changed in terms of cultural understanding, recognition and respect and more. And we at the RFDS certainly haven't always got it right. How do we, and I ask you this as a board member, how do we as an RFDS service avoid tokenism and make real change in terms of our journey to reconciliation? People who know me well know that I'm not a fan of obviously tokenism and to be perfectly honest, I'm not a fan of reconciliation action plans because quite often people start and stop there and don't move forward. I believe that if the culture and the structures of an organisation and leadership within organisations support diversity, inclusion and behaviours that reflect that organisation, that's more important than the dot painting on the wall, the welcome to country, the boardrooms named after uh, Aboriginal clan groups, the what you know whatever else people do it's a start but it's not the only thing you can do i look at aboriginal employment strategies and think to myself most of the places that i've worked with and felt most accommodated have not had an aboriginal employment strategy i've just had good ceos operators who say you've got talent, we're going to support that, would you like a job? Um, So for me, in some ways, I feel there's a lot of window dressing and we've seen major corporations across Australia, I won't name them on radio, but that have got the most amazing or had the most amazing reconciliation action plans and what they believe is good relationships with Aboriginal people, but that can be done overnight. So it's a continual process that we have to work through. And if you have high numbers of Aboriginal people employed in your workforce, you're almost being taught how to be culturally competent, free of charge, courtesy of that person. But you also need to recognise that what they call cultural load doesn't get burdened to that one person in, you know, in your organisation that's Aboriginal. So understanding what role an Aboriginal person plays in the workplace is one thing, supporting them and embracing that is another. I feel that RFDS has got good leadership at the top that um, endorses that and will continue to support that beyond reconciliation action plans and the dog paintings and whatever else I see on a regular basis um, in many organisations and yet the culture isn't safe or secure or engaging for Aboriginal people. I know that from my role as the host of this podcast and and my broader job within the Royal Flying Doctor Service, I consider that what I can do, what can I do towards that journey? And what I keep coming back to is truth-telling through stories, whether that's interviews with wonderful people like yourself or patients um, or staff members or community members. And that truth often, those stories reflect time periods and things that happened 30 years ago, 40 years ago, or even last week doesn't necessarily mean that that's something that's endorsed or something that's going to continue forwards. But I think there's that recognition and respect that's deserved in the telling of stories. So 
I don't know if I've got that right, but that's sort of my view as <laughs> as a communications person is sort of saying, well, I can do my best to make sure that stories are told and that they're accurate and that they're culturally respectful. Oh, for sure. I mean, one of the perfect examples is quite often people will say the stolen generation or the history of the massacres across Australia that happened years ago, I'm not responsible, just get over it. We don't say that to return soldiers um, from That's Vietnam, right. Anzac and World War One. We just, so, so we need to reflect on that. We don't, we can have a level of empathy um, that acknowledges the past. I see the ability for that to happen with Germans against the Jews and the Holocaust and what they've done to repair the damage and their acknowledgement that it happened and it will never happen again. It's taught in schools. It's, they own the history and, the, and they've been able to reflect that it was a terrible tragedy of what happened. I'm not sure that many Australians take that view when we look at Aboriginal history in Australia and I'm looking forward to that day when that happens because we need to own it because we are the only people in Australia that have had legislations only for Aboriginal people. You know, I, I get tired and weary of people who say immigrants to Australia made it in Australia without nothing. Why can't you as Aboriginal people? Well, I just show that that's a reflection of a poor understanding of our history and how legislation has impacted on us as Aboriginal people and there'll be a lot of Aboriginal people that will say that they don't feel comfortable walking down their main street without feeling like they're um, being judged and as I've said before I don't want that to be the feeling that my children have because I saw it with my grandparents, my parents and my own experiences and I think we can do better. We can do better as Australians um, and acknowledge the past. And we can do better because we'll all be better off when we don't have these judgments and biases in our place. And, you know, we, we need to all stand up when we see wrong things happening. happening. I mean, that, that saying of the standard you walk past is a standard you accept. I think right. that's something that we need to live by because I've lived by that all my life. Thank you so much, Leanne. This has been an incredible interview. I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your views, and um, I wholeheartedly agree. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Word of mouth is always the best promotion for a podcast. So if you enjoy this podcast or a specific story, please share with family and friends. If you haven't already, join our Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community. And you can also send feedback, questions or comments to me directly at lana.mitchell at rfds.org.au. Donations to support the Royal Flying Doctor Service can always be made through our website at flyingdoctor.org.au. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Coolen. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. 
To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.